Um, Pastor Bates and I, if you put our years of ministry together, it's probably well over 70 years of ministry between the two of us. And we would both say the same thing. We have seen a lot of regret. We've seen a lot of people regret decisions, missed opportunities, failed relationships. We've seen a lot of regret where people said, it was my fault. I messed this up. I did this. I caused this. I have seen a lot of regret in my life. People have regretted not doing a better job with marriage. People have regretted not being a better parent, grandparent. People have regretted financial decisions. Um, I have seen and felt lots of regret, but I have never, ever had anybody regret being baptized. Never. No one in all these years of ministry has ever said, I wish I hadn't been baptized. I wish I hadn't done it. No one has ever regretted that incredible event. And baptism is that event where you just feel like your sins are all just washed away. It's kind of prophetic because it prophesies where you're going, not where you've been. If you think about the prophetic piece of baptism, this is not who I am, it's who I was, but it's here's where I'm going to be and who I'm going to be in the future. And so this morning, we're, we're going to talk about Christian baptism, making no bones about it. I want you to be baptized tonight if you've not done this. That is my agenda. I have an agenda this morning. I want you to know it. Because it's an incredible touchstone in your life. And I, people say, well, should I be baptized? You know, is it dipped? Is it dunked? Is it dry cleaned? I, we're going to talk about that. All right? We're going we're to explain what this is all about. If you've been baptized a long, long time ago, maybe you've forgotten how powerful it was. If you've been baptized two or three years ago, maybe you've not realized what you're supposed to be doing yet to walk in that fulfillment. If you've never been baptized, I want to talk to you. But in all my years of ministry, I can write books and books and books. I can write libraries of regret. I could tell you a thousand stories of regret off the top of my head. But I could tell you five or 6,000 stories of people saying it was the best decision I ever made was to be baptized. Let's start with Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, his name is actually John Mark. And John Mark is not confused as to who Jesus is. I don't think he's the Messiah. I don't know if he's the Messiah. I'm not John Mark's going, he's the Messiah, hands down. He's the Son of God. Isaiah the prophet, Mark says, is going to tell about a messenger who's going to come who will prepare your way. And it's to be a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Uh, we, they called it a herald. This was the original Facebook. This was marketing. This was Snapchat. This was getting the message out. This is somehow communicating. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. Circle that word repentance in your mind. He's preaching a baptism of repentance. means y'all need to change direction. You're going this direction, you need to turn the ship around and go this way. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a big deal, really big deal. But Jesus' baptism was even a bigger deal that he offers you and I. 
The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Denise and I led two teams, and we've been baptized right there ourselves in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. I remember reading that going, why is the Bible telling us what the guy ate and wore? Who cares? Then I realized that Malachi, the last chapter, says before the Messiah can come, he has to come like Elijah. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene wearing and eating just exactly like Elijah. It was such a fulfillment to prophecy. J the B was really fulfilling, ate and wore exactly what Elijah did. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Picture Billy Graham. Picture Billy Graham at the height of his career with an incredible crusade. That's kind of like John the Baptist. John the Baptist has an enormous following. Sometimes we don't see that and we miss that. But J the B was the man. Everybody was coming from all over this countryside. And, and he had this enormous following. It's like Billy Graham. And Billy Graham is, would be saying exactly what John the Baptist would say. Billy Graham would be saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the famous one. I'm here to make him famous. That's what John is doing. John's going, when you see the Messiah, you realize the discrepancy between me and him, and it's a huge chasm. I, I'm, not, I'm so low compared to him, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Incredible humility from John the Baptist. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Game changer. That's the game changer, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to come and descend upon you and me in a great way in Acts chapter 2. It's going to descend on Jesus here in just a second. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Everything Jesus did, he modeled for us. Why in the world did Jesus get baptized? Because he modeled for us what he wanted and needed for us to do. And you see that throughout the entire scripture. He only came to do what the Father did. He only said what the Father would say. Jesus was always modeling from the Father for us what we needed to do. It's amazing when you look at the Gospels. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. And this word torn open is a radical expression. It's like the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. This is a, heaven now is open. Don't miss this. The point now is you and I have access to God. The veil in the temple was written to. The holy of holies and the holy place, there's now no separation. And now we have access to heaven itself. Your prayers make a difference. Your prayers now, by the power of the Spirit, reaches up into the heavens. And the heavens hear your prayers, answer your prayers, and send them back down to this earth. And so at this moment, the heavens are torn open. It will never be the same because of this moment in history. And he saw the dove, the Spirit, descending on him like a dove. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. It's just a symbol. And the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and it rests and resides on him. And so he tells us that, this is like one of the most incredible events of all, and it's confirmed with God saying, you are my son, whom I am loved, 
whom I love, with you I am really well pleased. And you're going to hear that same affirmation when you get to heaven as well. You're going to hear the voice of God saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. That's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. So we're asked a lot of questions about baptism. Let's raise some of those questions right now. Let's just kind of go through some of those questions, and and we'll answer them at at the end of the message. But here's what you've been asking. 30-some years I put together this list. Here's what you've asked me over the last X number of years. How much water? Good question. Dipped, dunked, or dry cleaned? How much water? What's the age and why? What's the purpose of baptism? Doesn't it say somewhere to be baptized only once? Since this is not my family background, what should I do? Why the beach? There's no formal baptistry. No one's wearing robes. You wear robes out there in 90-degree heat, all right? You try to wear a robe. You can wear a robe if you want to. Just don't wear a Speedo. But anyway, wear what you know. You can come. Have a good time. I don't feel worthy. So what do I do? Great question. Great question. I don't feel worthy. Is this necessary for salvation? Awesome question. I have no idea. Ask the elders. No, I'll answer it in just a minute. I'll, I'll try to answer this. What will people think? Will they think I have a lot of sin? Yes, we will. <laughs> we will. So what's really fascinating to see is archaeologists have unearthed, have discovered over two, um, in the last two, 200 years, I'm sorry, the last 100 years, about 200 of these baptismal pools. So in Jerusalem alone, there's 200 of these that archaeologists have, have unearthed. Now, there's many, many more all around Asia Minor and all these different places where there were churches. But in Jerusalem itself, in the Jerusalem proper, there's been over 200 of these. They're about the size of a hot tub, a jacuzzi. And they were very, very popular, very familiar in that culture. And in that, that, here's one that's a little bit bigger, isn't it? So what do we do with all this? And why would we be baptized? Well, I, I, we don't do a lot of doctrine here on Sunday mornings. We do more of that in our connect groups. But for a few minutes, I want to give me two minutes, and we're going to talk about some theology. Can I have two minutes? Seven of you said yes. Can I have two minutes? All right, let's do a little doctrine for just a second. There were two really good theologians in the 400s who vehemently disagreed with theology to each other. Now, can you imagine that, people not agreeing on something in the church? So here you've got, you've got two theologians, and both of these were really good guys and did some great writing, but theologically they were on opposite continents and icebergs. This guy, uh, Augustine, A.D. 400, and the other one was Pelagius, A.D. 415. Augustine or Augustine, some people say Augustine, other people say Augustine, Augustine said this, when it comes to sin, infants inherit the sin of Adam and Eve. And so a child is born a sinner. And so what sprang out of this was the concept of what's known as original sin. And original sin means at the moment of conception, 
a child is born in sin. So a whole lot going on politically right now in all these different states around in there about this topic. But this theologian landed on this, that at the moment of conception, the child was born in sin. Now, the next guy said, no way. And again, I can't imagine two, two, two theologians within the church not agreeing, but here they don't. They don't agree. This guy, Pelagius, said, infants are born without sin, and they become sinners when old enough to understand. You see the difference? Are you following this? So infant baptism started with this theologian. A woman had been in labor for 30-some hours, and she gives birth to a stillborn child. And the midwives actually started infant sprinkling. It's fascinating where some of these things even got started. But it began to do that. The midwives began to do this because this theologian taught that there was sin at the moment of conception. Now, how did that work? The sin was in the semen, and so at the moment of conception, there was sin, and so Jesus wasn't conceived that way, so he was born without original sin. A whole lot of theological gymnastics to to get to there. But that's what he believed. This guy said, are you kidding? Children are not, infants are not born in sin. Rather, they become sinful as they mature a little bit. Now, if you've ever worked back in the toddler area, you know that's true, don't you? (laughs) Do I have an amen on that? You see a sin nature very early in life, don't you? And so this guy said, no, 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 it's not original sin, but there's a sin nature that happens as you season and as, as you mature. Very interesting, these two theologians. So let's look at a section out of Acts. And if you've got your app on your phone, you want to download the Harborside app. If you're new with us this morning, welcome. Uh, And we're going to fill in some blanks real quickly. In Acts, we find nine snapshots of where people became Christians. It's really fascinating to me. If, If we're sitting at Starbucks and you said to me, where do people become Christians? And you would say, do people become believers in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No, they really don't. Thief on the cross, but other than that, no, they really don't. Do people become Christians in the book of Revelation? No, they, they really don't. What about Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians? No, no, they really don't. There's nine snapshots in the book of Acts, and it's beautiful because there's individuals, there's households, there's small groups, and there's large groups. So we've got nine, I call them snapshots, nine pictures of who, how, when, where people became believers. Now, I think this is a big deal, and, and I think we need to really pay attention because Acts is a 30-year history of the early church, and it gives us the first 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And so we find nine different groups, basically, who became Christians. This is a large group. This is one of the nine examples of a large group that became Christians. Let me just read these verses, and then we'll fill in the blanks. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is Peter. This is the same guy who denied Christ three times. This is the same guy who ran away and cowered before a middle school girl. This is the same guy that, after Jesus was then crucified, ran to his home, locked the door. These are the same guys who were incredible cowards. Now... They're standing before Caius, Caiaphas, Annas. They're standing before the very people that they ran away from. What gave them such boldness? They had seen the resurrected Christ. 
And these men would all go to their deaths, except John, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos, and they would all boldly proclaim, we have experienced, we have seen, we have witnessed, we don't think we know, we know. Empirically, we have experienced the resurrected Jesus. It's a great story. It's incredible. So here, Paul, here Peter now is proclaiming this in front of the very people he ran away from just years before this. I want you to know, he's not running away now, is he? He's not warming his hands now by the fire saying, I don't know who Jesus was. Aren't you a Galilean? Yeah, but I don't know who he is. He's not doing that. I want you to know God's made this Jesus whom you crucified. Can you imagine the hair on the back of their necks right about now? He's Lord, and he's Christ, and you crucified him. He's the Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's a theological term for conviction. We've all felt that conviction. We've all had God convict us of our sin and of our need for Christ and of our need to somehow deal with our sin. Sin's our greatest problem. We were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the other apostles, how do we fix this? How do I get right with God? What should we do? Great question. Peter said, repent. In other words, turn direction. You're going this, you're going this direction, do a 180. You didn't believe in God. You didn't believe in the Messiah. He's the real deal. Turn this way. Get on board. Get on the ship. Get on the train. Get on this, this Jesus train and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you'll get the gift of this incredible Holy Spirit, which is the game changer. The promise is for you Jews, and it's for your Jewish children, and it's for all who are far off. That's probably most of us in the room, if we're not, if we're not Jew- Jewish, that's for the Gentiles. It's for the future promise this was going to take place. That's for you and for me. Over 2,000 years ago, that prophetic message was given for you and for me, for all who are far off. That's us, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message. Those who accepted his message. Say that with me. Those who accepted his message. Again, those who accepted his message. Again, those who accepted his message. See, not everybody will accept. Not everybody does it. You have a choice right now today in your life to accept the message. Those who accepted the message, don't miss that. There are always people who walk away. You work with people who have walked away. You have people in your family who have walked away. You have people in your neighborhoods who have walked away. Why would anybody walk away from the greatest gift of all? Those who accepted the message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I hope we baptized 3,000 people this afternoon. Wouldn't that be awesome? The beach would be overtaken by believers. So what did they do? Well, let's fill in some blanks. First of all, they heard the gospel. They heard that Jesus was the Messiah. And you know what they did? They said, I think he is. I, I, I think he is the Messiah. Based on my evidence and based on me thinking this whole thing through, I, I think he probably is the Messiah. And I love this because how else can you explain the story? Now, maybe, maybe you don't want to believe, because if you believe, you have to surrender your life to Christ, 
I, I get that. Maybe you don't want to believe. But how in the world can you not be smart enough to see that cowards don't become courageous? People who run away and lock their doors do not stand boldly before the very people they're scared to death of and say, you crucified the Messiah. This is an amazing story. So they, they got it. And then they embraced it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe in Jesus. And they repented. I am going to turn around. I do think he's the Messiah. I'm going to change directions. I'm going to repent from my sins. And they get baptized. We're going to talk more a little bit about that. They got baptized. And they got their sins forgiven because they came to Christ. Christ is the only one that can forgive your sins. You can't do enough deeds to forgive your sins, get your sins forgiven. You can't pray enough prayers. You can't do enough good things to get Only Christ can help you with your sins. And they receive this wonderful gift, this amazing gift, amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when you realize what Christian baptism really is, it's a game changer. It's saying that I'm going to enter into the community of the believers. It comes after conviction of sin, confession of sin. It comes after confession of Christ. You come to Christ, and then you identify with this incredible event, which is the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The greatest event in all of history was the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I think it's prophetic. I think your baptism is prophetic where it prophesies not where you've been, but what he did and where you're going. So let's look at some of these questions. Let's come back to them. How much water? Well, we started with lots of water in the, in the church. Then we went to little water, and, and now, now we do both. And so Protestants and Catholics today do both. Um, I think it's kind of hard, though, to baptize somebody, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus without at least a little bit of water. So we got lots of water today. What, what's the age? We would land more with Pelagius. We, we, we do, don't think that children, let me use a different word, we don't believe that infants are born with original sin. We don't find that anywhere in Scripture. But we do know that as children season and mature, they began to have to make choices between right and wrong. I'll never forget when I had daddy duty. I don't know where Danita was, but it was a Saturday morning, and I'm sitting in my lazy boy chair in Memphis, and Erica and Ethan are playing so nicely. Erica's a four. Ethan was a little over two, two and a half, and they're in Erica's room, and she's playing, you know, with her dolls, and he's probably got, you know, toy guns and knives or whatever. So he's in there, you know. And, and Erica's singing this song. I love telling this story about you. He's, she's singing this song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. She stops in mid-sentence. She said, Ethan, you touch my doll one more time, I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> and then the next breath from Erica, I've got the joy, 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 joy down. I mean, I mean there's, there's some sin going on there. Probably comes from her mother's side of the family, but there's some sin there. I'll pay for that. We see that. I, I don't know what the exact age is. I don't think there is an exact age. I, I think it's when you're aware that you love Jesus. You're aware that you want Jesus. You need Jesus. Jesus needs to be, 
you need a little bit of awareness of, I have a need for a Savior. I don't know what the exact age is. Well, I know what the purpose is, though, of baptism. is to identify with that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, greatest event of all history. Doesn't it say somewhere to get baptized only once? No. No, that's quoted. It doesn't. The book of Ephesians says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. In Ephesus, on every street corner, there were idols. And people were getting baptized into this idol and into this idol and into this idol. And people were getting baptized 15 or 20 times in the name of all these idols. They were hedging their bets. And Paul is going, this is worthless. There's only one baptism, and it's in Jesus Christ. I've been baptized three times. Those of you that know me go, we probably should do it again. I've been baptized three times. I, I did it very, I was six weeks old in the Methodist church. I don't remember it. My parents did it for the right reasons, all the right reasons. I was 14 years old. Dad and I did it together. I'll never forget that moment. And then about three or four years ago, Danita and I were in Israel, and we got baptized in those waters that poured out of the Jordan, and it was just a cool experience, just cool. Since this is not my family background, what, what should I do? Well, I, I think you should always honor your family backgrounds. I, I honor my parents' parenting, and I honor my parents' marriage. My, my parents have been married over 62, 63 years. Great parents. I've got an older sister, younger brother. But we don't do everything that our parents did. Dean's parents have been married 60-some years, too. We learn from that. But I don't do exactly everything that my dad did parenting-wise. Great dad, but I don't do everything the same way. So the point is, I don't think you ever slam your background. There's no need, no reason to put anything down, but, but just go forward. I mean, we continue to learn new things and new exposures and new realities. And sometimes in Scripture, even as you grow and season and mature, there's more unseen realities that get exposed to you. I would never put your family down. Why would we do, put our family background down? But we're not going to stay stuck with some of the things our family background taught us either. We're going to learn from others and grow and learn from Scripture. Hope I didn't get any of you kicked out of your family because of that right there. Why the beach? There's no formal baptistry. <laughs> no one's wearing robes. I love that one. I, I've, I've honestly been asked that a couple hundred times. How could you not wear a robe? Do you know how hot it is out there on the beach? Uh, we, we, just, we just really feel like it, it, it's not clerical material. It's the whole point about baptizing you into Christ. By the way, you know we're now designing a new worship center. We're designing a new worship center that, that will go out here. And it's kind of funny because we've really thought this through. We have a baptistry over here that no one hardly ever uses, but, but we decided in the new worship center right now, we're not designing a baptistry because we want to continue to use Florida's natural opportunities. And as a church, we'll continue to go to the beach and beaches as long as the state government allows us to do it. And if a day comes where we can't do that, we'll ask 50 of you, can we come to your swimming pool? <laughs> we will. And we'll have one day, we'll have days where like 50 different homes and we have 30 or 40 people just show up at your home and get baptized. It doesn't matter where. That's not the point, is it? 
The point is that you do this in, in honor of what Christ has asked you to do. And we won't be wearing a robe at your house if we do it at your house, too. I, I like this question. I, I think that's, this is an honorable question. I, I don't feel worthy. If you knew how we teaching pastors feel to be up here in front of you, none of us feel worthy. None of us feel like we're good enough to do this. There's always a gap between where we are as men and women and, and, and Christ. There's always a gap. I love Billy Graham saying the same thing. He said, I'm down here and Christ is here. None of us feel worthy to be able to do this. You always feel that, that gap, that chasm between where you are, and you can't never dumb down the gospel. You never water down the gospel. You, you, we, we as teaching pastors, we're, we're striving, but, but we, none of us feel worthy. I think that's an honorable statement if you say, I don't feel worthy to get baptized. That's a great statement. But the truth of the matter is, nobody can get cleaned up on their own. I've never seen anybody get cleaned up on their own. I've had a hundred people say to me, well, when I get a little bit better in my life, that's when I'll go get baptized. And my response is always the same. I've never seen that happen. You might be the first. I've never seen that happen. What I have seen is, people come to Christ, and Christ starts cleaning you up. Christ starts changing your life. Christ starts moving inside of you. I, I, I get the I don't feel worthy thing. I think that's really good, you don't feel worthy. But it's really bad to keep that from Christ being able to do what he does so well inside of you. Is this necessary for salvation? Well, that's a great question. I hate that question. When you ask me that question, I hate it. I do. Because I don't always know how to answer that question. Because on the one hand, I really think it is necessary for salvation. I do. I'm just not sure for who. I'm not sure if it's necessary for, if it's more necessary for God or if it's far more necessary for me, the individual doesn't seem like it's really necessary for God. What's necessary for God is what I do with his son, Jesus Christ. I, 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 don't, I don't think God needs me to do communion, but I need to do communion. I, I don't think God needs me to give tithes and offerings, but I think I need to give tithes and offerings so greed doesn't overtake my heart. I don't know that God needs me to be baptized for me to get to go to heaven, but God, is, God knows I need to be baptized. I need that touchstone. I need that flag in the ground. I need that moment in my life where I publicly declare that I'm on that side. I choose that side. So I, I think it is necessary for salvation. I just haven't quite figured out who. What will people think? Will they think I have a lot of sin? We already know you do. Because we do. I do. You do. We already know that. And that, that's the whole point. So what is baptism? It's identifying with the greatest event and the greatest person in all of history. Friday morning, there were four of us that took off in a Grady White, about a 32-foot Grady White, two 300 Suzuki engines on the back, 
and at 5.15 in the morning, we're flying out and we're going out 40 miles to fish. The wind's blowing at 5.15. I'm thinking this is going to be a rough one. And sure enough, we get out about 10 miles and we're in four-foot rollers already. And we got 30 miles to go. So we gutted it out, beat the stew out of all of us, and we're out there 40 miles. And I'm not, it's, I'm not exaggerating. It's, it's four and five-foot rollers. Now, because I'm a preacher, I like to tell you they were eight to ten, but it was really like four or five. And, and we're trying to find a spot about the size of our stage. Now, imagine how many hundreds of square miles there are out there in the Gulf of Mexico. And we're trying to find a spot the size of the stage. I don't know how they did it in the old days. We got thousands of dollars of electronics, and we find it. But it's blowing us so fast that we're trying to drift over this spot, and and your line's going this way, and the boat's going this way, and the wind's going this way, and the current's going this way. The seas were just angry. I call it the washing machine agitator, if you know what I'm talking about. It's It's just moving you left and right. So then we get the bright idea that we're going to anchor. So we try to anchor, and we miss the spot. And if you've never done this before, I know there's several of you voters in this room. There's a mathematical formula. It's like three feet for every foot that you want. So if you're 100 feet away from your spot, you need to drop 300 feet away. So you're dropping 300 feet away trying to get back to your spot. Now you've got wind, current, waves fighting against you. We missed it nine times in a row. I've never had this happen before. All four of us are fairly decent anglers and boaters. We missed this spot for two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. <laughs> and and um, I'm just glad none of you were there with us. Let's put it that way. <laughs> we were so frustrated. So we get then 160-some feet away from the spot. And one, one guy said, well, let's... And I thought, yeah, let's try. Let's see if we can put down sardines and squid. And you stink up the bottom and you try to pull the fish to you. And the fish can't smell us from 160 feet away. We're fishing over sand. We're just fishing over sand. We're wasting our time. Another hour, hour and a half, we're just, you know, all looking at each other. And the day's, you know, half over now and we're, we're not catching any fish. So he said, you know what? You got to find your spot we got to get on the spot. We either get on the spot or we go back in. So another two or three times, about the third time then, we nailed, we're right in the middle of our spot. We caught nine different types of fish in the next two hours. We are slaying the fish. It was awesome. It was awesome. I got pictures and autographs when you're ready. It, it was just so much fun. Here's my point. There's so many other waters that you can swim in. If you don't find your spot, you will never accomplish and achieve what God has designed for you to do. It it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how much power you have. It doesn't matter how much influence you have. If you don't find your spot in Christ, nothing else matters. Jesus said it so plainly. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but there's a narrow road. There's a really small spot, and the spot is Jesus Christ. And the spot is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
and the spot is Christ now comes in you and lives through you and you change every environment and every person you come in contact with. You've got to find your spot. There's a spot available for you and it's in Christ. And Christ has come to set you free. He's come to forgive you. He's come to give you purpose. You've got to find your spot. Your spot's not your education. You've got to be educated. Your spot's not your money. You've got to have money. Your spot's not your job. You've got to have a job. Your spot's not your business. Your spot's not your kids. Your spot's not your relationship. Your spot's not anything or anybody else. Your spot is in Christ. And it's narrow. So why fish anywhere else? Why fish first over sand? Now, again, if you're not a fisherman, fish aren't over sand. I should have explained that. Fish are over hard bottom. They're over structure. Why, why fish anywhere else but the spot? God has a spot for you, and it's always in Christ. And so I want to encourage you. If you've never given your life to Christ, Jesus, I give you my life. We can make this real complicated. It doesn't need to be. Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. It's yours anyway. I've just given it back to you. I give you my life. And I'm encouraging you this afternoon, this evening, get baptized. Identify with the greatest event in all of history. Jesus got baptized. Jesus, model this for you and for me.